Welcome to the Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose podcast. This podcast showcases inspiring appraisers and professionals from the industry who are leaders in their field. How did they get to where they are? What have they learned along the way? And what do they do now for their teams, their clients, and the industry? Your host is real estate investor, entrepreneur, and appraiser, Michael Hobbs. Well, John, thanks for joining us. We're excited to have you here on our next installment of Parusing's Appraisers on Purpose. And it's never a dull moment when we get an opportunity to meet with peers and just hear, how did you get to where you're at now? And what have you learned along the way? And uh, what nuggets might other people be able to gain from your experience as they consider either improving their professionalism or expanding their competency or jumping into the industry from doing something else. So with that, welcome. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me, Michael. It's been a long time in the waiting, I think. Yes, it has. The gestation period has been robust. Yes, indeed it has. Well, John, we always love to start out and say, were you born this way or how did you get into the industry and get to where you're at and what you're doing now? And how did I get into the appraisal industry? Well, I should probably start with what I did before that. Oh, yeah. I was in the trades early on in my life. Happened to be working for regular clients. And when I say trades, uh, paint, wallpaper, finished carpentry, stuff like that. Oh, yeah. So I happen to be at this house and I'm in my full paint gear and I'm the kind of guy that <laughs> wipes everything off in my shirts and my pants. And this one family, we were there probably three, four weeks every year working on some part of their house. And the wife particularly liked me because I would accommodate her request. She wanted to eat out that night. Even if we weren't working in the kitchen, I taped everything off and covered everything. So <laughs> husband take home, he would say, well, I guess go out to eat. So I was in my early twenties and I had left the job site. The husband had come home and he asked me to come back to the, the door. He wanted to chat for a few minutes. And he uh, asked me if I would run his cardiac diagnostic company for him. And I literally thought I was on candid when, camera. Like, yeah, maybe our reference would be candid camera from back then. They would have called it punk, you know, a decade or two ago. He said, listen, you work in an environment where everybody is at least twice your age. They're in their fifties. You run a job site really well, timely. I've never seen you not meet a deadline uh, at our house year after year. The respect the team members have uh, coming to you, one, to ask questions on how to fix or solve a problem that they were having in the house and so on. And he goes, I think you could do it. And I said, well, let me think about it. I talked to my wife and I made the leap and I decided uh, it was Holter monitoring. Oh, okay. I took some classes on how to read EKGs and was reading books and all that good stuff and literally managed that company. 18 months later, we sold it to a company based out of St. Louis, our biggest competitor. And then I moved into distribution of automated external defibrillators as luck would have it. I think all of us are aware of the news uh, from the Buffalo Bills and Cincinnati Bengals game the other night. And, oh, goodness. Uh, that individual had a sudden cardiac arrest and the defibrillator is probably what saved them, at least as of today. But anyways, I was very passionate about defibrillators and mm-hmm. placing them in the public sector. And I ran a successful company there. And our intent was to move to Arizona and expand from the Midwest. We had dominated the Midwest. I had some salespeople that were pretty competent in New England, in the mountain areas of Denver and so on. But nobody really in the Southwest. And I had a desire to move there anyways. Oh, nice. I ended up selling that company 2005, I guess it was, to oh, okay. editor back in Michigan. 
Uh, <laughs> it's still in existence today, believe me. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Later. So when we had moved to Arizona and I decided I'm going to sell this company back, my wife, who is an appraiser, oh, okay. uh, she was working in Arizona, trying to set up her business and do some you know, those kinds of things. And she just assumed that I sit around and do nothing. I don't think she knows you that well at that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, she goes, uh, could you do do me a favor while you're sitting around doing nothing? And that it helped me. And she goes, I said, sure, what do you need help with? She goes, I want to make sure my company is set up properly. We've been here now four or five months. I'm not mm -hmm. sure it's set up with the state correctly. I'm not sure my accounting is set up properly and if I'm getting paid by everybody. And then uh, the third thing is I'm so busy from because I was soliciting while I'm out doing nothing, soliciting clients for her. But also, the company she had worked for in Michigan was not active in other states, but had clients that served in other states. And so oh, she started referring clients to her. That's great. I'm so busy. I, I need to know which client to let go of. First thing, setting up the company was easy. The accounting was also uh, relatively easy for me as well. And then I said, well, what do you need? Because uh, firing a client is foreign to me, right? And so <laughs> help, I need other appraisers. So Michael, we actually, uh, long story short, as we built that firm up, we had about 30 appraisers in Phoenix. I'm sitting there and I'm working on the stuff and I picked up the phone. I finally settled all of the accounting. Oh, uh, medicine. Yep. I pick up the phone to call a client to ask where payment is. And she had done what a lot of appraisers do. She was applying payments to the oldest appraisal mm -hmm. yeah. uh, as opposed to specifics. And so over my shoulder, she hangs the phone up on me, right? And she goes, who are you calling? I said, I'm calling this client to ask for paper. <laughs> and she goes, well, here, you need to do this first. She put out three pieces of paper, principles, procedures, and 15 hour use back. And it had my name on it and it had dates oh. and times. Are you kidding me? You were voluntold for, for appraisal courses? What did you sign me up for? And she goes, if you're going to talk to an appraiser to recruit them to work with us. If you're going to call a client, if you're going to call a consumer to help schedule employment, then I think it's important that it is that I do. Okay. Uh, I, I took those courses. Wow. What year was this? 2003. Oh, wow. Wow. What interesting timing. I didn't get licensed until 2007. The driving force there was I got a letter from the state of Arizona and they said, listen, you applied for your license Sure. 2003, you've got four years that expires. You need to get your license. You have 30 days. Well, you got to start over, right? <laughs> yeah. And I already had the hours. I already had the classes. But <laughs> we were running a firm and, and sure. my license wasn't that important, not to me. And so I did. I took the test. I passed. I got my license. And of course, every Friday, we took our appraisers out for appetizers, drinks, that kind of thing. Sure. And so my wife says, hey, I think everybody should congratulate John. He got a license today. He finally, he's our newest certified appraiser, licensed appraiser. And the appraisers were dumped on it. They're like, wait a minute. I, what do you mean? I already had a license. I made it the point. I took all, I took just tons of classes. Sure. Just nerded out on appraising. So that's how I got into this business. And wow. And as luck would have it, I was involved with the Coalition of Arizona Appraisers and mm -hmm. getting the the legislation to govern AMCs through the state and all of that kind of stuff, licensing, right? My wife said, gee, you know, we got to let the appraisers go from California because uh, if we have appraisers in two states, we're going to be called an AMC. And I said, yeah, that's true. 
she goes, well, let them tell them they can go do their own thing. And then she says, by the way, we got to reduce our number to like 19 or 20 because the cap is 20. Threshold, yeah. We did not want to be an AMC and fast forward. Class valuation. It is my my wife has been working for several and also now works for class and kind of ironic, right? It really is. It really is. I mean, many people at some point went through a, a similar decision point, and that is, hey, this is legislation. This isn't economics. This is legislation that's guiding my decisions. And do I want to step into that arena or do I want to step back from it? Do I want to be a multi-state operator going forward and taking on whatever that new environment is? course it's easy to look back now and say well here's what it is but at the time you're like oh no like things are changing (laughs) it doesn't look good like you know i'm not some huge bank with a big bank roll and i can just pay for whatever it is it's like i have no idea what's coming down the pipeline yeah well the the funny thing is a dear friend of mine who has since passed his name was daniel smith and he was a youth path instructor the primary qualifying and continuing education instructor in arizona because he was based out of phoenix he and I were good friends. He loved the fact that I was willing to share. So I'd visit his office and vice versa. And he was my mentor becoming an instructor for phrasing. Yeah. We would go out to dinner and we, the four of us, uh, his wife, Kathleen and Blair and I went out to dinner one night and he says, you know, he goes, so the legislature is going to pass the bill that we pushed forward. And so registration was going to start on such and such a day. I suggest that we apply together we'll create one amc name we focus on arizona and we'll be that we'll be amc license number one right and blair looks at him and says daniel i i don't want to run an amc and he's like oh so kathleen and blair get up and they use the the restroom and daniel leans in and says so what about you and i said are you joking i can't i can't can't go against my wife that's the boss we didn't run an amc at that time but fast forward, it would have been interesting if we did and where we would be today, but that wasn't the our vision at the time, right? And so sure. it's all good. That's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So from there, how long did you all continue to operate until you transitioned into other segments of the industry? I, I guess it was about 2011 is I was challenging USPAP and the definition of client and the appraiser-client relationship and so on. And that's well documented, although uh, fairly misunderstood. Yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Our firm, Michael, we, we were never adverse to AMCs in the first place. We yeah. we never had a client that used more than 5% of our business. That was our cap, right? That's a great cap to have. If they were creeping three and up and wanted to bring more business, then we started looking at, at our business model. And so one of the things we would do is how much more business, what allocation are you going to send our way? And obviously learn from them, What, why were they even thinking about bringing more business to us? But, And then we would look at the resumes that we have for appraisers and then decide, all right, maybe it's time to hire Mike. And when we hired you, we were sensitive to the fact that the, uh, the appraisers that work for us were expecting a, a volume, right? We leveraged the AMCs at that time to turn on volume. And so we knew it was, for the lack of a better term, uh, a wholesale fee, and we were willing to work with that for our appraisers. So the appraisers that were working with us, if they were expecting X number of assignments per month, then we were able to still feed them. And then at the same time, hire you, Michael, as the new appraiser and get you work as well. And then when we were at a point where we were comfortable, then we would start to turn that spigot off until a client said, we want to bring more. And we'd say, well, listen, 
here's the problem. I need to go find business from some other clients because you're now meeting that threshold that we have. So that was really how we worked with AMCs. And so without having that sort of like, oh my God, I don't want to work with them. I, I, I feel like we had some partners. Axis at the time, Kim Parati and Michael Simmons, they loved visiting different metropolitan areas and having get-togethers with their appraisers. And they invited us uh, at one point in time to visit with them, and we did. Next thing you know, my wife is working for Axis as a senior reviewer and ultimately in their compliance when the person who headed up compliance had retired. And so uh, that was her first experience and she had, so now she's working for an AMC. As luck would have it for me, I was looking for some other opportunities where I could help appraisers, where I could manage people. That's what I've done my whole life, working with teams and managing those uh, towards a unified goal. A headhunter had found a chief appraiser position at a small sister-owned company to a lender, AMC in Northern California, took the opportunity and moved here to Sacramento. And Wow. And that was my first AMC. And as luck would have it, I had the opportunity and Eric Richard Warren, who's still a good friend of mine, owned Landmark Network, which was mm-hmm. steep in the reverse space. Uh, yep. which was very, very cool. My experience at Value 360 was great because as a sister company to a lender, Michael, I got to interact. We, we were not in the same building. We didn't have the same leadership and we didn't even have the lion's share of their business, but it was an opportunity to interact directly with their underwriting team and start to understand the whys. How do they ask questions? As an appraiser, it bugged me when you would send these conditions over, but I, I started to understand the whys of their ass. And I, I thought that was incredibly valuable. Landmark Network, because it was in the reverse space, we were 75% FHA. And it's why I'm today probably considered in, in the country an SME for FHA. Mm-hmm. And then Landmark Network was ultimately acquired by Class Valuation in 2019. And I was fortunate enough to join this team. And I love it. And I'm four years, January 1 with Class. And I couldn't be happier. The, the resources, the team, and the technology is second to none. Makes a big difference in today's environment to be with somewhere, as you said, where you have the resources, the technology, and the team. A lot of times you might have one of the three and it's a stool doesn't stand well if it's missing a leg or two. No, no. <laughs> so it's been really, I'm, I've been I've been extremely blessed, uh, Michael. So that's amazing. It's a fantastic experience. And one that, you know, given your experience across multiple industries, like many people in this profession, you didn't start out in it and- if I heard you correctly, you didn't have any family members that came along and said, hey, John, you're going to come into the family business. Go hold the other end. As one gentleman referred to it, he says, my job was to hold the other end of the tape measure. <laughs> it's all I knew for like the first four years. He said, but I was only nine when I started. I was like, yeah, but you're also the fourth generation of doing this, which is quite an impressive podcast session in and of itself. But for many people who come into this profession, like myself, like yourself, who are from other industries, it is a different perspective. And Maybe it's even better because as you touched on, I'd love love to go back to it. You all by choice had a cap on your client concentration and you chose a low cap of 5%. Some people choose 10, some people choose 25, some people don't even choose a cap. I think it's extremely insightful. Maybe if you just take a minute or two and just share the rationale behind that and the wisdom of that approach. Well, you know, this is all pre-Dodd-Frank and Home Valuation Code of Conduct, which was sunset, as we know, in 2010. I mean, we did a couple of things. One is wanted to make sure that we were diversifying the load. So in other words, uh, we had a couple of banks that we strictly did review appraisals for them, 
right? Mm-hmm. And so nothing that we ever did, and we didn't work for their lender partners, right? We concentrated on hard money if that was an opportunity, and then we would cap that out. And the new construction environment, uh, custom home building, um, refinance it, it. So we were always sensitive to the fact that w- what was the concentration of our client also, right? So if they were a heavy refinance company, then we looked for another lender that was heavy into the purchase space, right? Yes. And so that was important. And then the allocation was about really controlling our interests. In other words, and it still happens today, but as an appraiser, and, and you've been in this a long time, and for appraisers listening that have been in for a long time, it was not uncommon. We can act like it wasn't, uh, but it was not uncommon for somebody to say, and maybe it wasn't real pressure. It sure felt like it, but it could be something like, you know, Michael, listen, this one is for my nephew. This is their first house. And I know it's going to be close, but whatever you can do to make this happen. And you start thinking, what if it doesn't work out? Am I going to lose that client? Because you're only as good as your last appraisal, right? I mean, that this is the mindset for many. Yes. So we didn't want anybody to have that kind of leverage over our firm. And certainly we didn't want it to impact our appraisers that worked with us. The idea was if you're capped at 5% and you're probably somewhere between 3 and 5% of our volume and you make those kinds of remarks, we can stand firm and we can say very plainly, Michael, I'm not sure that's going to happen. And whatever the number is, when it comes in, it will be the number that it is. If they didn't like it and they moved on from us, then we knew they weren't a good client to begin with. But it gave us a sense of security and just get the ability to stand firm where we were, understanding that we had independence even then. And I think for appraisers universally, Michael, who looked at home valuation code of conduct as a disruption to their business, they had to end those relationships, so to speak. And and that can be a frustrating experience, particularly if you're one of the, the appraisers that's doing the right thing. It was really managing our volume in that load uh, that allowed us to to protect ourselves from from that kind of activity, I guess, if you will. It's a prudent approach, and it's it's one that fortunately you took on from the early point. Many people may not have had that uh, understanding, that exposure, or even more unfortunate, we're on the other end of it, where they they did have that phone call where it said, "Look, I mean, I remember a particular time back when." Uh, the economy wasn't like it was over the last couple of years and, and things were changing as we're starting to experience now in different places, different rates uh, across the country of change. And at that point, the the mortgage brokers we work with were uh, very upset when a rep- appraisal would get submitted and you check the box that the market was declining. And they call up screaming. They're like, what do you mean you check the box? The property values are declining. I'm like, well, they're going down. They're like, but you can't check the box. My client will have to come up with like five or 10% more. And I'm like, uh, so we'll tell your client to come up with five or 10% more. And they're like, you must change this appraisal. I mean, I can't tell the number of times we had those conversations. I'm like, look, you're going to have to go somewhere else if it's that important to you. And we had a number of clients that did. And boy, that that always was a terrible experience when you yeah. lost some chunk of business. And if it was a larger chunk, I remember the one year, to your point, you mentioned AMCs. There was a a very large uh, Midwestern bank with a name that pretty well recognized from a numerical standpoint, and they happened to change the appraisal management company they were working with. And we had a good relationship with the appraisal management company we were working with, really good relationship. Turned out it wasn't good enough because they knew that they were losing the business, but they didn't communicate that out. And then we literally, in a matter of a 90-day window, lost like 22 or 24% of our business. And I was like, 
what what did we do wrong? Like we did nothing wrong. Yeah. I, I think that's such great wisdom that you share there for people to keep in mind, no matter what they do, whether it's in this industry or any other industry. You just said something about, you know, business changes and you have no control over your clients in the direction that they go. And we worked in the HUD REO space, which was a, a big deal in mm. Phoenix after the market collapse. And the contract was within, was with one asset manager and we were working with them and we were doing a lot of work for them because we were timely and they did a lot of measurements on metrics, uh, specifically because they're the FHA's concern was how disparate is your opinion of value versus what they end up selling it for in direct yeah. and based on market, right? And so yep. they didn't want things selling so fast that it was liquidation value, right? And yes, and they didn't want things sitting on the market forever. It means you would appraise it too high. They lost that contract, and a new a new asset manager had the new contract. Now it was important to us to always maintain relationships. And and I hear appraisers talk about with an AMC, you can't have a relationship. And that's just not true for a couple of reasons. But in this particular case, it turns out that that asset manager who had won the contract didn't want to start from scratch and not have any relationships with FHJ and, and or understanding of how to deliver and yardy and all that stuff. So they hired several people from the other asset manager, just plucked them. Well, those people said, I know who you need on your panel. Yep. These are the appraisers and John and his firm are one of them. And so we were very, very fortunate in that regard, but it's because of the relationships that we had and it's because of how we treated those individuals as professionals. Now, Blair will tell you, we also lost a client because I couldn't contain myself. I did the, we got conditions over and over again that were already stated in the report and I finally let loose and sent an email to the owner of the the lender and sure. said, this is crazy. I mean, why don't you tell your people to read my reports? That was the last appraisal we ever did for them and my but, wife. But you guys probably became more profitable by leaving that relationship because it was costing you so much either time, time emotionally, Maybe. or actually literally money because of the operational cost and process of resubmitting reports. Maybe. I, I think, you know, from my perspective, Michael, I like the feedback loop. And so mm -hmm. when I see appraisers post online about things that we do or companies that I work for in the past, and it's like, well, I, I don't know anything about this. If you had just come to me, I can use this as a coaching opportunity for the team to get better. You want an AMC to be a better partner. Here's one way to do it. And that's provide constructive feedback, constructive feedback so that there's a learning opportunity. A AMCs aren't going to make money. Class valuation doesn't make money off of conditions that we send or the number of times that we get it. In fact, our clients uh, have scorecard meetings with us on a monthly basis and yeah. and they're always concerned about the number of revisions. So that really doesn't happen. But I, I will tell you my real first experience when with regards to relationships that people have, and, and I've shared this story before and maybe you've heard it, but I was at Landmark and my office cubicles in the, the bullpen, if you will, was right outside my office in Sherman Oaks. And so every once in a while, I'd have somebody would say, hey, you've got to call this appraiser. It would show up in my email or whatever. And I'd walk to the door and I'd say, hey, does anybody know Michael Hobbs? And somebody in that room would go, oh my God, what about Michael? The stuff that shared Michael, he was crazy, right? Like I'd say, well, I have to call him. I've got an email from Michael. He says he needs some help on an appraisal, right? They don't know why I was asking about you. Somebody would say, oh my God, by the way, Michael is, he's taking care of his mother-in-law, by the way. And so can you ask how she's doing? And they'd know her by name. Or they'd say, hey, 
Michael's dog had surgery about a month ago and I lost touch with him over the last month. And I'm just curious if the dog's doing okay. Or Michael has this one joke. I don't want to spoil it for you, but hopefully he tells you it's about, it's the reason I share that with you is yeah. those are relationships. The only way they know that is because they have a relationship with the appraiser. Exactly. And to me, it's, it's vitally important. I think, you know, before we got on Michael and I'm going to digress for a minute, who you're talking to, right? And I, you shared the story about not realizing who somebody was or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. When my wife was from Louisville, Kentucky, like you, so when we had kids and we were living in Detroit, she would go down and visit the family. And I'm, if you know me, I don't cook very well. I certainly wouldn't expect you to eat the food that I cook and I'm not going to do it. But then how hungry you are, John, you know, it's cooking is there, there's at some trade off. It's like, dude, I'm just hungry. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, so I would find a, a bar to go to and I'd go sit at the end of a bar, watch TV, mind my own business, eat my food and leave. And so I'm at this one bar and I'm minding my own business. And this guy comes up behind me and asks the bartender for something. I sort of was ignoring. I thought he was a little close to me, given the fact that there's multiple empty seats. <laughs> so he asked the bartender again. The bartender finally replies. And then he says, knocks me on the shoulder and says, can you believe that? I mean, where is customer service at? Now, this is back in like late 90s. Right? Okay. And- the bartender is just busy. I I don't know what to tell you. And so he sits down right next to me. Oh my God. This <laughs> nice to meet. And one thing led to another and we started talking. And we talked till the bar closed. And I had never been to the bar until two, right? Oh my goodness. And I hadn't drank anything either. Right? Like oh, I had I one beer when I started. We're talking, we're talking. He gave me his card. I have this uh, habit. I don't look at people's cards when they give it to me. I just put it in my pocket or something. Sure. So the next day, my wife says, where were you last night? I was trying to call you. Two in the morning. You got you got some explaining to do. You got some. <laughs> so I, said, I met this guy at the bar. And she goes, oh, you, I'm sure you met a guy at yeah, the bar. Yeah, a guy. Prove it to me. <laughs> yeah. I said, I'm telling you. And I, I said, yeah, he's got his card. He gave me his card. It's somewhere. So I find the card in my pants and I pull it out. He was the chief financial officer for Verizon. Wow. <laughs> He's a friend today. That's fantastic. He sends my daughter's birthday cards. Oh, wow. Christmas wishes. He's no longer the CFO for Verizon. I think he took over some other companies. But He's probably somewhere else in the C-suite. I never leveraged him for, for anything other than seeking his counsel once in a while and different things. Now he had yep. asked me. If I, at one point in time, would I consider going to North Carolina to run his dealerships because he's going to buy a bunch of dealerships, that kind of thing. And I'm like, eh, it's not the industry that I want to be <laughs> in. When I looked at opportunities, we didn't talk about it, but I was an HOA president for seven years. I ran meetings a particular way, which um, piqued the interest of our one of our city council members that was over our area. She had then nominated me and I served on the planning committee in the city of Phoenix for a bit at her request. She ultimately ran for the mayor's office and asked if I would run for a city count for her city council seat. I wasn't really interested in that, but I was interested in legislation. I wasn't sure if I wanted to work with city management. And so of course, who do I call? My friend <laughs> to really help me walk through whether or not this would be a, a good opportunity for me or not. And, and so I had decisions to make when this guy sat down next to me. And I, again, I didn't know who he was when he did. 
I didn't know who he was while we sat and talked, but we had an engaging conversation. I don't think we agreed on everything that we talked about, but we were professional and cordial to one another. Sure. And the end result is got a friend for life that does some pretty cool things. So that's such a great example of when you're more focused on the quality of the interaction than the quantity of you know what you're going to receive. Great things can show up over time. It's like planting seeds. You don't know which ones are going to sprout and where they're going to sprout and you know what it's going to turn into. But as, as your experience is sharing, sure many people can relate to. You just never know when someday you kind of look up like, oh my goodness, I knew them when. I would dare say your experience is probably similar. When you get together, it's like, okay, you're whoever you are, but you're just, in this case, you know, Dave, or you're just, you know, Joan, or you're like, you're just that person I know. You're not that title or you're not that like public figurehead or what have you. You can be that, but not when we get together kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, that's, that's a fantastic approach to things. Wow, that's, that's phenomenal. And I love the fact that given that you had that opportunity to start out in the trades and to get that exposure, and, and you didn't really touch on it, but you have also had the opportunity to work in a union environment, which if, if for those of you who had the privilege of doing that, it's an eye-opener. I've worked in I'd say healthy union environments and I've worked in, in very acrimonious union environments and, you know, getting the opportunity to work in that environment and then work in, in uh, the entrepreneurial environments you've been a part of, and then even work in larger organizations. Like each one has different cultures. Sometimes people can coexist across multiple cultures and other times they can't. And that's actually a healthy thing to recognize that sometimes it's not a good fit. And that's great to realize that and stop either, from my perspective, maybe yours, torturing yourself or torturing others. Go to where there's happiness, you know, where yeah. enjoyment and fulfillment. It's interesting for me. I grew up in Detroit, so everybody I know and family members work for the big three automotive companies in one yes. way or another. And my dad worked in the steel division for Ford Motor Company for a long time. I had an opportunity to work at Louisville Assembly Plant. Uh, we talked about that for a minute. And my wife was super excited. It was an opportunity to move home. And as a former resident of Louisville, you know that uh, Ford and UPS are really primary valued in employers, right? And so yes. her family was, oh my God, he's a little bit of a, a celebrity kind of feeling that you got a job at Ford. Um, in the union. If in the union. For a lot of folks, the UAW and or their respective unions are incredibly uh, rewarding and enriching in their lives. And for me, I had always gone to an all boys uh, private school and in Catholic school and in junior high and elementary. And I was always driven to perform and try to outperform everybody, whether it was academically or athletically or whatever it was, and then be rewarded for that. Yes. When I was a baseball player, I led off and I played shortstop because I outworked everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember one day, now I'm going all the way back to Little League. I remember one day that the I had already made the all-star team and we were 13-0 or something like that. And all of a sudden I, I walk out to short. The coach's son walks out to short. And he says, Hey, my dad said I can play short today, you know, or for this game or something. And I look back at the coach and like, I don't think so. Yeah. And and so I wasn't gonna budge, but I I thought then, like, wait a minute somebody just gets to play because they know somebody or because it's time or whatever. Yeah. And that was my experience at Ford at Louisville assembly plant. And, you know, within two years recognized that it wasn't a healthy environment for me. And it certainly wasn't going to be one for uh, my relationship with my wife. <laughs> recognize that. And, and I ultimately uh, went back to the trades, 
where I felt like there was some better opportunities for me at the time, but um, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I, I learned a lot about people, the environment and Ford is, you know, was extremely successful then and, and still today. So it's part of my life journey. It is. And it's one of those, that ability to work with people. Uh, obviously you had some natural talent, but that uh, being exposed to that environment broadens your capacities. And I, I think that's one of the interesting things I've observed. And I at least hear that in what you're sharing is you had abilities that you, you came with, and then you chose to invest and develop your capacities and your influence. And through both being more informed and uh, being more capable that you were able to take on successively more, I would say, interesting, definitely diverse. I would say, you know, broader responsibilities for many people, once in a lifetime experiences. Most people never start a business that grows to anything of scale. I mean, when you look at the numbers, between 80 and 90% of all businesses that are started die within five years. And if you look at, if you actually make it five years, 80 to 90% more of those companies die. So business, starting businesses is just a road filled with death. It's like, hey, we're on the, we're on the pathway to the funeral. It's an accelerated path compared to most. But then you look at it and say, wow, I not only grew a business, I grew it successfully and I exited successfully. And hey, I'm still here around doing more things. Like most people never get to that result. I mean, you, you've accomplished a lot in a short amount of time. Yeah, well, because you, you think I'm 29. But I'm well, you, you look 29. I mean, that haircut, it's impressive. You all should see the haircut. It's He, he looks sharp. So I'm saying. I'm, I'm really 51 uh, going up <laughs> in a couple of weeks. No, I think, Michael, you and I share an affinity towards a particular book and it's a series of books, but it's the EMF principle. And I've certainly talked about it at conferences, but it, it's something that I take near and dear. And it, it, it's something that I think has benefited me for the companies that I work with. I think if you ask anybody at class valuation, I'm not a partner. I don't have uh, ownership rights or anything like that in class valuation, but I don't think anybody at class would tell you or say otherwise. I, I think they all think that I believe it is my business and I have ownership stakes in it. I've, I've treated every company I've ever worked with that way, uh, whether it was, again, when I wasn't the owner. And then from the EMF principle, it, it really is about working on your business, not and unfortunately, when I sold defibrillators into the public sector, that was a serious challenge, right? Like you didn't need it. Why would I need it? A law office or a dental office or a school or a golf course when there's police fire and EMS that happen, right? I ended up earning from the eight dental associations endorsements, if you will, yeah. uh, or my company and the and specifically the units that we um, distributed. So I visit a lot of dental offices and I, I find a lot of similarities between a dental office and an appraiser. And, and I look at what's happened to the dental office since then. And then from the EMIT principal perspective, how many dentists actually survived is particularly with an expensive brick and mortar operation for very long. It, they have had to deal with a lot of changes in their careers. Do you accept insurance or not? Well, no, I don't want to accept insurance because that means I'm accepting a disparate fee or a different fee. And then I got to wait for payment. Sounds a lot like an appraiser having to deal with AMCs or uh, working with lenders, right? And then they would say, I'm going to work with all my patients in cash. A lot of them would stay. They only want dentists and then they lose a bunch of patients. Oh, shoot. This is really going to impact my bottom line. <laughs> How do I get Michael back as a patient? Well, yep. 
I'm going to have to accept the insurance that you have, right? And so I, they're faced with making those decisions. And then I gave an example a couple of years ago regarding technology and changes. And it's one of the reasons I get so excited about class because we've invested in technology. And regardless of what you think about desktops and hybrids and property data collection, I think there's an opportunity for appraisers to provide a feedback to ensure that those technologies and are working in their best interest and for them. And without that feedback, that's not going to happen. But look, I remember here. So here's my story I shared at the appraisal summit a couple of years ago. I used to love going to the dentist, Michael. So you're one or what? One in a hundred? I mean, I mean, I, I don't mind going to the dentist. I don't know if I loved going to the dentist, no, but I, I appreciate I, that you loved going to the dentist. Number one, I, I didn't have any cavities, but I, I loved going to the dentist. But there was a reason. And my uncle George was my dentist. And Uncle George was grooming, man. I mean, 70s and the, I mean, he looked like Elvis. uh, Anyway, (laughs) Uncle George was also super funny. But I remember it like it was yesterday. I was about 10 years old. My brother is my Irish twin. So he was nine. And we walk into the office and my mom said, you can check us in. And I got super excited because I got to go up and ring that little bell, right? At at the window. Those bells. Gosh, bring back the bells. (laughs) So I I ring the bell. And the smoke glass window slides open. And I was expecting my Aunt Shirley, but it wasn't her. I immediately turned around and looked at my mom and I said, I think we're in the wrong office. Where's she going? Where's Aunt Shirley? Where's Aunt Shirley? And she she says, no, John, we're, we're in the right office. Just check us in. So I check us in. Window closes. And so we're sitting down and now the door opens. Now, in this case, my Aunt Shirley did open the door and she says, John, Scott, come with me. And I turned around and I put my hand on my brother's chest and I said, hold on, I'm the big brother. I go first, <laughs> right? And my aunt Shirley says, no, you're both going to come back. And I looked at her and I said, well, it's going to be hard to clean my teeth with them sitting on my lap. I didn't realize <laughs> we're going to now walk us to two different rooms. Oh. And so now I'm like weeding for a minute and this lady comes in and starts cleaning my teeth. And I'm like, you are not my uncle George. Yeah, but what's going on here? <laughs> I don't like the dentist anymore, right? <laughs> and, uh, so anyways, there was another individual that was cleaning my brother's teeth. And then my uncle came right after and he, uh, he smoothed things over and told me some of his dad jokes that I was particularly fond of. It didn't matter how many times I heard it. But nonetheless, you know, I, I thought about that before the conference because I had literally just got my teeth cleaned uh, leading into it. And there was one person who checked me in. Mm-hmm. One person that called me back to the room. Yep. There was another person that took my x-rays, another person that cleaned my teeth, mm-hmm. the dentist who looked at them, another person who took my payment when I left. That was six people. Yes. That would have been two people in back in the 70s. So drive efficiencies in to sounds foreign, but to generate additional profits, right? You had to expand and sure. You had to. My uncle had to focus his tasks on what I refer to as revenue generating activities for him as a dentist. Sure. Stop performing those other activities that uh, really serve no purpose. And for appraisers, I look at that as uh, highest and best use. I'm fortunate. My original mm-hmm. license is Arizona. Arizona, it's a mandatory state for both appraisal and review. And so if you are not licensed and credentialed by the state, uh, you cannot render an opinion of value on real property. So that is a real privilege. Yes. And so that is my highest and best use to use an appraisal term. And that's what I get paid for 
Um, all of the other stuff, even though I like doing it, I love measuring homes. Shoot, I teach a class on measuring and measuring for ANZ and AMS and all that good stuff. And I hold a whole measurement specialist certification. So it's near and dear to me. But I can teach somebody else to do that and do it well. And they don't have to be an appraiser and they don't have to be credentialed with the state. Should I be looking at driving efficiencies in my own practice? And my answer is yes. My focus and energy should be on those activities. And by the way, a good friend of mine, if you ever interview him, Brian Reynolds. Oh, yeah. Brian will tell you he got in this business because somebody told him one day, hey, if you're an appraiser, you get to give an opinion of value on real property. And he says, and I get paid for that. And they said, yeah. He goes, I love giving my opinion out. So you just get the checkbook out and start writing them, right? <laughs> but anyways, those are our opportunities that are in front of us today. And I'm going to share one other story, if you don't mind. And that is, I was at an event in Northern California and it was a USPAP renewal. And I was asked uh, very kindly and, and graciously to get up and speak during lunch while everybody grabbed their food and so on and so on. And what I heard during the first half of the class was a lot of appraisers talking about and you see it today in social media and platforms and in forums. Everything is the 1004. And I'm using that. Form. To me, the users of appraisal services are looking for our opinion about. However, we deliver that to them, as long as I can do it within the confines of USPAP and do it ethically and incredibly, I'm good with it. And so give me more opportunities to remain relevant in our yes. space. And I don't want to do things that make it so I'm not. One way to ensure that is by just refusing to handle the workload that somebody might be sending you for a variety of different reasons. Deliver it in a means they're looking for. I'll share with you my blueberry muffin story. It was in that same class. And again, I come from, remember, an environment in the trades and then in distribution for medical sales and services where really it's customer service driven. Our defibrillators were more expensive than most and with an unfamiliar name and all of that stuff. But uh, we focused our energy on our company, our service, and what we provide to our, our customers. And so the hearing appraisers talk about, I wouldn't do this, I can't do that. It was just foreign to me. And so as I kind of took the front of the classroom, there's about 125 appraisers in the classroom at the time, and they were preparing for lunch. And when they were preparing for lunch, the lady... One of the ladies was clearing the table that was there for breakfast, if you will, like had to make room. And so I saw she was picking up the plate of, uh, it, there were three muffins left. And so quick on my feet, I said, Hey, excuse me for one second, before you take those, I said, are you going to just throw them away? And she goes, yeah. And I said, well, before you take them, I found that they were exceptional. And I said, so does anybody else in the room want one of these blueberry muffins before she takes them out back and throws them away? And there were no takers. And I'm like, seriously, you're going to throw them away, right? And she says, yeah. And so one guy raises his hand. He says, I'll take one. I said, great. So I take one of the, the muffins over to him, center of the room. And I start walking back to the front. And I hear uh, him say, hey, this isn't a blueberry muffin. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. So a lady in the front says, well, I'll take a blueberry muffin. And so I take one and I give it to her. So I start walking away and I'm holding the last one. I'm like, who wants the last one? And this lady says, hey, this isn't a blueberry muffin either. So Michael, I walked up to her. I took the muffin from her. I took the wrapper off. I took a bite out of it. I said, you're absolutely right. It's not a blueberry muffin. And I gave it back to her, right? 
as you can imagine, I mean, the whole point was this isn't how we serve the users of our services, right? We, yes. we don't say this is all you get, take it or leave it. I don't really care, mm -hmm. but that's sure how it feels sometimes. And so again, I, I can't stress this enough. I'm, I'm not asking or suggesting that appraisers do things that are unethical, illegal, or undermine the, their credibility as a professional, sure. but to find ways to remain relevant. I think that's a wonderful story about the uh, blueberry muffin. And, you know, good blueberry muffins are really good, of course. They are good. Uh, but there's a lot of not so good muffins out there. And sadly, and in any profession, that's the case for the total population. There are some exemplary participants. There's a lot of good ones. There's definitely a host of average ones. But then there's other ones. Sometimes a disproportionate amount of communication comes from uh, some of the segments. Uh, without like jumping in the cesspool of mess. But I, I think it's such an interesting point where, and you know, one of my, my original seed, my inspiration, if you will, for, for this podcast was when I look back at the experiences I had, many of them weren't great. And it was only my own motivation and persistence that kept me in and kept going. I was like, there has to be a better way. And I think some other professions over courses of time, decades, if you will, not, not, not even potentially centuries, have really found a better way to bring people into the industry. And uh, this one hasn't for reasons that are way beyond the point of the podcast, but the opportunity to just hear from others who through one pathway or another, like yourself, found a way into the industry, have found a way not only to stay in it, but to thrive and ultimately to contribute in a meaningful capacity that uh, opens up possibilities for others. It's inspiring. It's like, hey, we need to spotlight this. We need to create opportunities to let other people know you too can make a difference and you too don't have to stay in the spot that you're in. And uh, what's next for you is pretty wide open. If you know John's past experience is any indication, you too could be in defibrillators. Yeah, I don't know, man. I get inspired by new entries into the, to our profession all the time. I mean, if you just take a step back, Michael, and you listen to him, I the fortunate invitation from uh, RDS to visit the Phoenix office when I was uh, there uh, just a, a little less than a year ago. They wanted to hear my story, but I was just as interested in hearing their story and journey and encouraged them to send me updates along the way. And their perspectives are also very cool and interesting. And my daughter is a trainee, incidentally, so there is that was season. <laughs> Um, she's halfway through her journey to becoming licensed. So again, she has a different perspective. Now, I try to be mindful. She has her own mentor, right? Her own supervisor. And so whatever's happening there, I don't want to interfere with unless I thought there was something that, that was going on that's wrong. But just because I don't always agree with his methodology or his process in teaching her doesn't mean that it's not sound and good and she can't sure. learn from it. But when she calls me, dad, why do appraisers do it this way? Right. <laughs> and I think about it, I talk about Daniel when, look, AMCs have been around for 40 years. If they, there's been such a discussion online that they must be new or relatively new, that's not true, but they've been around for 40 plus years or so, before, even before licensing. But when that legislation was being passed in Arizona, the old appraisers uh, who care, the, the original coalition back from licensing, which had disbanded uh, that group of appraisers, so the old boys network, although I think there were more women involved than men, 
at that within that organization, but started to meet. They started to coalesce to discuss should we uh, pursue AMC legislation in our state, and sure. what other things can we do to in, improve the profession. And the the advent of that is the Coalition of Arizona Appraisers, which I had served as president for. But at the time, a whole group of us were meeting, and for many of them, they were talking right through me. I was new. I wasn't young. I mean, I was in my 30s. I was new to them. I wasn't part of that network. And so we left the restaurant after one meeting, and I said to Daniel, I said, what am I even doing here? And he goes, well, it's a 2-4 package. They really want me to be involved. And I told them that the only way I'm going to be involved is if you're involved, and you're involved because you provide a different perspective. And you do it in a constructive manner. It's not to say, oh, I can't do this, or I would never do that. It's, I would prefer not to do it this way because there's a different way and here's what it looks like, right? And he, he just thought that that would be better for that group to hear it from rather than a newbie that's just flying off, the, if you will. Yeah. And fast forward, I'm friends today still with all of those individuals and, and quite good friends. And in fact, one of them, would refer to herself as my appraiser mom. And, and I <laughs> love her dearly for that. But it's those unique perspectives that if we lend our ear to listen, we might understand better what they're looking for, what they want out of the profession as well. And then we can exchange our own ideas. And again, hoping that they uh, lend in a, an open ear as well. I think that's an important takeaway. I mean, even the late Jack Welch had that uh, at the time was revolutionary approach, which was for each one of the CEOs of the various divisions. And, and the divisions they had were bigger than many of the companies on the Fortune 100 that all were under at the time the GE umbrella. And he encouraged them to adopt a young person because there's so much that you're not aware of. There's so much that you're not in touch with. And there's so much to learn from these future consumers allow them to be a mentor to you in some capacity because you don't know what you don't know. And I, I really hear that in what you're sharing. I mean, it's, it's a great opportunity to be a little more open-minded. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why class valuation, not only do we have staff appraisers, Michael, but we've developed a pod system where number one, if you're an appraiser that's interested in mentoring and supervising, coaching, teaching, because you want to share and your skill sets, if you will, then we want to help make that happen. And we can do that by also hiring the trainees. And so if there's looking at uh, coming into the profession and is having a hard time finding a supervisor, well, we, we've got one. We can also provide the resources and share resources so that the supervisory appraiser is not also overwhelmed. And so when I can jump on a call, they, even though they have their own team, but when I can jump on a call with them and, and share my perspective or help them in any way, shape or form, it's great. And then it's awesome for the pods because they're not just working with their supervisor. So they can also jump on Microsoft Teams or Zoom and get into a conversation. It's one of the reasons why I appreciate Brian Reynolds very much and his leadership at the National Association of Appraisers because he formed the trainee membership level, first trade organization that's doing that. Mm -hmm. And then champion them by creating a committee that's dedicated to trainings to make sure that we're serving them. And now at the AXE conference, which will come up here in Sacramento on April 1, there's a whole trainee event. There's a job fair. 
so the trainees can take advantage of, of all of that, take the opportunity to network with other appraisers around the country as well. In some instances, place an appraiser with a supervisor, which is very, very cool through the job fair. And then they get to do their own thing. It's a night out on the town with no supervisors, nobody else, just the trainees so they can commiserate with one another. But it is, again, for class valuation, it's really a breath of fresh air to have uh, trainees in their pods and working with us and learning from them as much as we can help teach them. I think that's fantastic. You know, just there's so many different opportunities and ways to approach the future. But one of the most advantageous one is to be proactive around it, not reactive, because it's a different view as, uh, you know, since you spent some time in Louisville and horse racing is quite large in Kentucky. It's a different view of what's ahead if you're up uh, near the front of the horse versus the rear of the horse. I definitely hear the class is much focused on being at the front of the horse in the horse race. Uh, Much better view. Create the future. Don't just wait for it kind of thing. So that is fantastic. Well, John, we're coming up on a little over the hour mark. Love to just hear any closing thoughts or or musings or encouragements uh, that you'd love to share with those who get an opportunity to to take this in and, and consider for themselves how they could transform their future. It's a good one. There's so many things that I think of. I survey when I'm teaching continuing education or speaking at a conference. I survey appraisers, Michael, specifically about two things. Uh, number one is, do you love the profession? And I've I've never seen a room less than 100% of hands being raised that they love the profession. I remind appraisers to remember that instead of focusing on the negativity, instead of pouring acid on your profession or your journey, which does not benefit you, uh, remember why you love it, why you got into this profession. Because most of us did it by, as you mentioned before, it was a choice, right? It didn't choose us. We chose it. And so find that passion again, remember why you love it and make sure you share that with others. So whether you want to mentor or supervisor somebody is neither here nor there, although I would always encourage people to give back, certainly Michael, to make sure that those new entries understand and know that you love it and you love it for a reason as opposed to being coming discouraged because of the the venom that you might be feeling. And the second thing that I would share, and and I do survey appraisers, is do you believe that we're a divided group? We often hear appraisers talk about the fact that we don't have a voice. I mean, part of that is we're such a small group in in comparison, right? So that's true. Somewhere around 75, 80,000 unique credentials. That's not a lot. We have a small voice. We have a voice. I don't care how small you are. You have a voice, right? Yes. But I ask the appraisers, do you feel divided and, and almost as many appraisers will raise their hand as those that said they love the profession. And I can only say this, it isn't the industry stakeholders or the users of appraisal services that are dividing us. They don't need to. We're dividing ourselves. We divide ourselves and we do so really in an unkind manner. Um, Social media is partly responsible for that. I believe if we've all gone through the process, we're all credentialed and we're all appraisers, then we are appraisers. We're 100% of raisers. And so if somebody chose to work in an assessor's office because that's their journey, I don't believe it's because they don't like working in the field or they can't cut it. In fact, I know an appraiser who made that transition from the field to assessor and he was criticized for it. But if you asked him, you would have learned that his grandfather uh, worked for the state and his uncle worked for the county and his dad worked for the county and his mom worked for the city. 
he believed you worked in the government space. There was opportunities, pension, time off or whatever. I see a lot of criticism towards appraisers that do different things. And you work in the mortgage space or you work for AMCs if you're in the field and I don't or I work only in litigation or whatever. I think embrace your own journey, encourage people to, to manage their own and remember that we're all appraisers and in kind, encourage them to be the best appraiser they can be. And so again, I would ask appraisers to stop dividing us as a group and rather unite us as a group. And uh, with that being said, I really appreciate the opportunity to share my stories with you. I'm just uh, fortunate and blessed, Michael, that I've had the, the career that I've had where I am today with class valuation and my experience uh, of um, uh, serving uh, our profession professionally through the NAA as past president in the state coalition in Arizona. And then, of course, my opportunity to teach has been so rewarding. I always say it's I feel a little guilty because I learn more from students than I feel like I'm uh, teaching them. But, uh, but anyways, uh, if, you, if you're not in this profession and you have the opportunity to get into it, I'm bullish on appraisers. I think there's some great opportunities for us now and in the future. And it may not feel that way today, but I, th I do believe that. Um, or I would have talked my da daughter out of becoming an appraiser. And if you are an appraiser, thank you so much for your service to our profession. And so thanks, Matt. I really appreciate it, John. It's a great way to kind of wrap up, not just uh, kind of what you've walked through, but more importantly, how you made a conscious choice to get involved. And as I've heard many fellow instructors share, I chime in exactly. I echo what you, what you really brought forward. And a lot of people don't realize that is you get so much more when you're giving. And people are like, oh, you're an instructor. I, I say learn so much more because of the opportunity to instruct in whatever capacity it may be, whether it's actual formal in terms of whether it's CE type courses, or I do a lot of education and instruction work in other industries and with business owners and entrepreneurs that has nothing to do with appraisal. I mean, I would say I'm better because I'm in front of people routinely can't answer all the questions. That's a wonderful place to be in terms of, okay, how do I put this together? Or who do I, who can I call upon? What knowledge exists? How can one plus one equals three versus one plus one still equals one? More of an anabolic opportunity versus a catabolic opportunity, which you're speaking to. So I think it's wonderful invitation for people, whether you're not in the industry yet or you are in it, get more involved in some capacity. Make a difference, not because you posted, but because you actually took an action in real time, in real life, and other people could say that things were better because of what you did. I think that's such a wonderful ringing tribute there, John. Right on, man. Excellent. Well, hey, thank you so much. Excited for everybody to get to take in all these nuggets of wisdom. And maybe they too one day will pull off a blueberry muffin type experience for some group of people they're in front of. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Well, well, thank you, John. This brings us to the end of a, another exciting, engaging, and educating Parusing's podcast, Praisers on Purpose. Thank you, and until next time. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose. We hope you enjoyed learning from the amazing life paths and achievements of our guests. Don't forget to like us on LinkedIn and other podcast channels to hear more from appraisers and valuers regarding their life and their work. If you have any suggestions or questions for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us a message on LinkedIn and we'll be sure to get back to you. 
Thanks again for listening, and until we're together again for the next session of Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose. Create the change that you seek. 